Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. Today, we're talking to Alan Dean Foster, the first author of Star Wars. From the initial 1976 novelization to its follow-up, as well as returning to the saga for The Force Awakens, we go through it all to kick off this first part of our Star Wars author series. So this is Talking Bay 94, Episode 10, Alan Dean Foster. All right, today I am joined by Alan Dean Foster for Star Wars, best known for writing the original novelization, as well as the follow-up, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Uh, He came back to the saga for both Approaching Storm and uh, The Force Awakens novelization, and he is joining us today. Uh, Mr. Foster, thank you so much for for taking the time. My pleasure. Uh, Well, before we dive into Star Wars, I want to talk for for a moment about how you you started writing and kind of what your influences were to become an author. Well, uh, I was always a facile writer in school. Uh, We had 4,000 kids in my high school, Grant High School in Los Angeles, and I was probably the only one of the 4,000 who looked forward to essay tests. (laughs) There was immediately something strange going on there. And (laughs) then, uh, you know, you take these these tests in school that tell you... uh, what you should do when you quote unquote grow up and they kept saying lawyer 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 so I prepared myself to be a lawyer and majored in political science at UCLA and my senior year at UCLA I discovered the film department and along with enjoying a lot of film history courses I decided to try a writing course again since it had always been fairly easy and fun for me I did well in it and I ran into a very wonderful man named Larry Thor who kind of became my mentor through UCLA And took a number of other classes with him as well as other instructors and uh, decided that instead of going to law school, I would try to get an MFA in film at UCLA and then I could go to law school after that. And while I was doing that, I sold a couple of short stories, science fiction. And I thought, well, this beats getting up early in the morning and putting on a suit and a tie and looking up precedents for the rest of my life. (laughs) Let's give it a shot, see what happens. So I got a job in public relations when I got out of UCLA and continued to write and did a novel thinking that, well, if nothing else, in 20 years when I'm at a lawyer's conference and people say, what are you doing? I can say, I'm working on a novel. (laughs) And Betty Ballantyne at Ballantyne Books bought it. I got a $1,000 advance. And I thought, well, I'm one for one. Let's take a shot at this for a year, 18 months, see what happens. And it all worked out. As far as my influences go, growing up as a writer, uh, there are probably two principally. One was Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. which found utterly fascinating, even though as a young, a young man I didn't understand a lot of it, but I just found the whole thing fascinating. It was magnetic in a way. The characters were, the situation was, I'd always loved the ocean. My other principal influence was Karl Marx, who created and drew all the great Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comic books from the late 40s on into the 60s. Marx was a terrific writer. He did these little compact novels with these little compact characters, mm-hmm. And went all over the world with them, and I went with them. And it was a very strong influence, not only on my writing, but on my developing my love for travel. And that's how I got started as a writer. So then from there and from the first Ballantine novel and kind of moving forward, what was the first thing to actually get involved with writing, especially the the novelization itself for the original Star Wars? I had had three original science fiction novels come out from now Del Rey, formerly Ballantine. Mm -hmm. 
and I've been working on the novelizations of, of the Saturday morning animated Star Trek series, books which turned out to be the Star Trek logs. The story, as I was told it, whether it's true or not, I don't know, is that someone had read my third novel, Ice Trigger, and had thought that it had the same sort of feel and spirit as this little science fiction film George Lucas was making, and that since I had done that and also had experience doing novelizations, perhaps I might be the sort of person to do the novelization of this film. Mm -hmm. And it was was recommended to me, I was recommended, excuse me, to the Lucas people and was sent over to meet Lucas's lawyer, Tom Pollock, at his office on, on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And he apparently determined that uh, A, I had some idea what I was talking about and doing, and B, I wasn't a, a, an axe murderer in hiding. And they then sent me over to meet with George briefly at Industrial Light and Magic, which at that time, as everybody now knows, was in a rented warehouse in Van Nuys, California. And I had a wonderful time walking around there waiting for George. <laughs> and uh, I, to, this day, to this day, I don't know how or why he allocated me as much time as he did. We probably talked for 15, 20 minutes. But he showed me all around. And, you know, here's the Death Star and here's what we're doing over here and here's what we're doing over here. And I guess I passed that test because I was then engaged to write the novelization and a sequel novel to be determined uh, later, which turned out to be Splinter of the Mind's Eye. So when you were actually writing the novelization, right? So what materials were you given? Concept art or script? Or how was it kind of presented to you initially? Uh, I was given a copy of the then current script and some of Ralph McQuarrie's pre-production art. Mm -hmm. I also was able to see what they had very briefly in the way of dailies a couple mm -hmm. of days out at ILM. And of course, walking around there, I saw... The Death Star Trench, which was giant pieces of put-together plastic, which were on pieces of plywood out in the parking lot, because mm -hmm. there was no room left to put them. And while I was walking around, this guy came over and said, you want to see something really neat? And he pulled me over and started talking to me about this a huge camera setup that he had, explaining that it was the first computer-controlled camera in the history of motion pictures, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't, couldn't wait to get away from the guy, because he was uh, talking about things I didn't know much of anything about. And I was still waiting to meet George. And it was John Dykstra trying to explain his camera <laughs> setup to me. Trying to explain the Dykstra camera to you. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. and of course, you know, I didn't know. So now you can't, you right. can't go back in time. And I got to see them shoot a couple of shots of the uh, Millennium Falcon against green screen and some dailies of the, the TIE fighter attack on the Millennium Falcon. No sound, no music, no color correction. Right. So that was what I had in the way of material at the beginning. And then later on, Charlie Lippincott who was in charge of many things at, right. uh, at the, on the project, gave me a 16-millimeter reel of bits and pieces from the film to take around to science fiction conventions, which I used to go to more often than I can now. And there was material on that I was able to see, like the Jawa crawler and things like that. It all, it all ended up contributing to uh, what I was able to put in the book. I mean, the book in itself still stands on its own as one of my favorite Star Wars novels period, but also just an incredible look on how the Star Wars galaxy was viewed back before there was a second movie even. And I think even more than that, Splinter of the Mind's Eye then then becomes something that's even more important and, and very interesting to, to go back and read now. So maybe let's talk for a second about Splinter of the Mind's Eye and, and kind of how that was positioned to you and, and how you kind of went about writing that book. George was working 25 hours a day on the movie and really didn't have a lot of time to devote to ancillary material, but devoted as much as he could. And the instructions were essentially, write a sequel novel to the first film, 
that can be filmed on a low budget mm -hmm. because George wanted to have not only more material out there for Star Wars people, assuming that Star Wars fans developed into something, wanted to have more material available for them right away, but he also wanted, in case the film was neither a huge success nor a big flop, to be able to do a second film on a low budget, reusing as much in the way of props and costumes and effects and so on from the first film as possible. So it was an interesting way to approach the novel from page one. That's why I set it on a fog-shrouded planet. Mm -hmm. reduces, it reduces the need for expensive backdrops. Of course, there was no CGI in those days. Everything was practical. And why so much of it takes place underground. And again, reduces mm -hmm. the need for expensive backdrops. And within that context, I was allowed to write whatever I wanted. The only real change George made, uh, the only other specification, excuse me, was that I couldn't use the character of Han Solo because Mar uh, Harrison Ford hadn't signed on for future projects or use of his likeness, etc., etc. Right. So no Han Solo means, meant to me at the time anyway, no Chewbacca. So that's why those characters aren't in Splinter. And Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher also had not uh, completed negotiations for the use of their likenesses in future material, which is why Ralph McQuarrie painted that wonderful cover for Splinter showing the characters of Luke and Leia from behind. You don't see their faces. Right. So that's how, that's how Splinter came about, and I was, you know, I was allowed. There were no more materials. There was no discussion of, well, this is what we might do for a second film if we make money, or the third film, or anything else. It was just go write a sequel to this film that can be filmed on a low budget, and that's a large part of why Splinter took the direction it did and turned out the way it did. I mean, really, it's the first expanded universe book. It kind of showed everyone the possibilities of what more Star Wars would look like, and and for that, really, people are still going back and, and using that as kind of a starting off point. Even this new Solo movie uses Mimbin as a, a key planet of the movie, which I thought was, was awesome, finally seeing it on, on a big screen, at least in some form. Well, tell you the truth, I haven't seen Solo yet. <laughs> But I, I've read about it, of course, and it's it's yeah. nice, it's charming. These sort of things happen because this is what fans like with an ongoing series, whether it's science fiction films or X-Men films or Sherlock Holmes stories. It becomes part of your private little imaginary universe, and it's really fun if you're reading, say, Sherlock Holmes story number 23, and Watson describes something that's sitting on a mantelpiece that was there in story number three. Right. And fans say, oh, I recognize that. It's like seeing an old friend. So in that way, um, it, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it, too. I don't know anybody who doesn't. From there with Splinter, you, you moved forward. And, and really, you became known as a, as a novelization guy, really, as well as doing some incredible works on your own. The Alien novelization is one of my favorite books ever, right? I think the way that you describe it and adding a whole new element to the actual movie is a really, really special treat in case people have not read that yet. The interesting thing with Alien was, first of all, it's a very claustrophobic film. Right. You don't have big space battles or fights between armed group of people which allow you more descriptive opportunities and possibilities. Uh, it's essentially a haunted house story in space. So you have to get into the characters' minds more than you even would otherwise in telling the story because that's in some in some scenes that's the only place you have to go is into the characters minds the other thing was fox gave me very little in the way of supportive materials mm -hmm. i had some idea you know i saw pictures of the ship and i saw obviously uh, photos of the characters but they wouldn't show me any pictures of the alien they were paranoid about images of the alien getting out of course nobody knew hr giger at that time Right. except probably some European 
collectors. And so the entire book is written without any description of the alien in any of its forms. Mm -hmm. That was tricky to pull off, but uh, it was very much the horror in your own mind is more horrible than anything that you actually see on screen. And that's what you go with uh, when you have a stipulation like that. Going then to the prequel trilogy, I think you more than any other author have kind of a distinction to kind of have worked in all three of the the trilogies really, right? And so with the approaching storm, uh, what was it like being called back to work uh, in the Star Wars universe? It's it's funny with these things. It's like no time at all has passed really. Hmm. If you have a, a reasonably solid memory of the original experience, it's very easy to bring it back. And that's what happened when I was doing Approaching Storm. It's like, like I know this character, I know this ship, I know I know what this costume looks like, and I know what I think I know what this is supposed to feel like. Right. And on that basis, I just simply went ahead and wrote it as what it was, which was a follow-up uh, in the story. I had a lot of fun doing it, actually. The difference is, when I did the first novelization and Splinter, it was basically uh, George said do this. And Gary Kurtz signed off on it, and Charlie signed off on it, and I went and did it, and then turned it in, and it was like, okay, that's good. And that was it. Whereas as Star Wars has grown into something uh, enormous, more and more people are involved in the vetting of anything involved with Star Wars, not just novelizations or original novels, but what goes on McDonald's drink cups and uh, what you can put on a child's bedspread. Everything has to accord. When I did the approaching storm, they had one person who was whose job up at the ranch, uh, Skywalker Ranch, was simply to do this: was to check five days, nine, nine to five, I presume, five days a week, and check that make all of make sure that all those things accorded with everything else. And it was already unwieldy at that time. Now you have a committee. Mm-hmm. And you probably have committees within committees. I don't know. I'm not privy to the inner structure. With Approaching Storm, everything was gone over with a fine-tooth comb in the first manuscript. And I went up to Skywalker Ranch, and we talked about this and discussed that. And I never write anything unless I have a reason for it. I don't just throw it in there. So I was able to argue for my positions, and sometimes I was overruled. And that's fine with the novelization. People have to realize that even though your name may be on the book, it's not your property. It's not your universe. And if you can't take criticism or being told to change things, then you don't take the job. The Approaching Storm in itself, I guess kind of as a bridge novel, really, again, is one of uh, a great kind of look at Anakin and Obi-Wan's relationship and kind of what that looked like before, you know, obviously turned turned bad what was kind of the direction you were given in terms of obi-wan and anakin and how they should kind of be playing off each other even kind of hinting at what was to come well i wasn't given any i only knew about that relationship from what had been already shown on screen nobody sat down with me or sent me and said we think that you know obi-wan should do this and uh, anakin should do this and this is how they should interact during a fight scene or anything else it was just basically left up to me I came up with what I thought that situation and all the situations and relationships in the book should be. Then when that was turned in, the group of people responsible for overseeing that project were able to say, well, we don't think this will work because, and I would go back and revise or argue or they would leave it in or we would make subtle changes. But from the beginning, I was allowed to do what I wanted. 
the most enjoyable part of that book was, of course, doing uh, Barasofi and Luminar and Dooley for two reasons. First of all, because I'd always been intrigued by the idea of female Jedi. And second of all, because they were brand new characters when they were given to me. It was essentially, this is a picture of this character and this is her name. That was it. So I was able to develop those characters in the way I thought they should be developed and in the way I wanted to for the fans. And nobody could come back and say, well, you know, in film six, this is going to happen. Or in film four, this happens, so you can't do this. So I had a lot more freedom with those characters, as I did with the setting and how they acted and everything else. Yeah, of course. So from there, I guess, your latest entry in the, in the Star Wars universe was, was very fitting, right, to kind of square it up with the beginning, which was the novelization for Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. What was that process like? Because really, the, the gap between Approaching Storm and The Force Awakens is, is not a, a small amount of time. What was kind of the first approach towards The Force Awakens? I, I went at it the same way I would any novelization as a separate film, mm-hmm. but yet one that had a lot of baggage with it. Right. And simply, you know, developed it the way, just like I did Approaching Storm or any, any of the other novelizations, the way I thought the characters would act and react in certain situations. Uh, I had certain things put in there that they asked me to take out, which unfortunately I cannot tell you about. And uh, certain things that I came up with, they left in, uh, which was nice. I was particularly proud of the work I did uh, uh, trying to make sense of Starkiller Base. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I, I I would get or see occasional comments from readers saying, "Well, this is just uh, this is just science fiction fluff. This is hand wavium, as it's called." Mm-hmm. And in fact, all of that description of Starkiller Base is based on actual astrophysics, which I had to do a fair amount of research on in order to come up with something that would make uh, even a modicum of sense. And it actually does if you happened to know a little bit about advanced astrophysics, which I didn't until I started researching Starkiller Base. Now I can explain it to people, and it actually, from an astrophysical physical standpoint, makes sense. There's nothing in there that isn't part of real physics, at least from the theoretical standpoint. Also, I thought it would be kind of fun if, uh, if the base uses dark energy because it's the dark side of the force and all of that and blah, blah, blah. Even though they don't accord from a physical standpoint, they just accord from the fact that you're using the same word for two different things right but i thought a lot of fans would say that's kind of neat you know dark energy of course of course the the dark side would use dark energy and on and on i think there's room to explore that in future episodes on the other hand star wars has not been moving in a direction uh, where the use of realistic physics in any way shape or form would seem to be included in the films so it probably won't happen but the journal of the wills uh george never told me what it was and uh, you want to know what it is, you probably have to ask him. But I always thought from the very beginning, when I first encountered that at the very beginning of the first film, first novelization, was that it was an account of everything that happens in the Star Wars universe put down by another species mm-hmm. who said, uh, you know, technology is obviously very advanced. And whether through it was their job or their interest, a desire to set all these events down. It's always nice in, in any imaginary universe to have a mysterious big book. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft, of course, is probably most famous for this with the Necronomicon, but there are other writers who did it as well. Right. And there's no reason why the Star Wars universe can't have the Journal of the Wills. You know, there's, there's still lots of directions that, that storylines like that and aspects of the Star Wars universe can go. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not involved, so right. You know, nobody asks me. When when you were writing Star Wars, I guess in the, these four instances, and also the short story you wrote for the Star Wars Insider, what what's been kind of your favorite character to work with, or, or see the the behind the scenes kind of thought process for? Well, I used to love working with Yoda mm-hmm. because it's always kind of this feel that you know he's he's the good teacher and the ultimate professor and strives for good but doesn't really have the physical capability to influence things on a massive scale however they've changed him around just like they've changed uh, a lot of other people around so uh, at this point i wrote my treatment for episode nine it's up on my website my last monthly post and that's that's what i would that's what i would have done i could I, i couldn't not do it let's put it that way i just as a Star Wars fan, as well as a writer, I could not not write that treatment. I also thought that, you know, I can do a few things here that will rationalize some of the controversial, with the capital C, points that show up in Episode Eight, and at least make them seem to have some sort of logical flow. Um, so that's why I did it. I, I had no choice. I had to do it. Moving past Star Wars and moving towards the future, is there any projects that you've been working on or anything that you would like to, to talk about? I mean, you've been very prolific, and every story that you've come out with has had a very unique perspective, and I know the fans are always clamoring for more Alan Dean Foster. Uh, well, in addition to short stuff, uh, had a collection of stories come out this month in ebook form, the hardcover will follow, called the Mad Amos Malone, The Complete Stories, which is, falls into what you'd call the weird Western genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a giant mountain man who everybody thinks is crazy, except he's been to Tibet and the Sorbonne and, and so forth. And that uh, that was just released by Del Rey this month. Next month, I have a novel coming out also from Del Rey called Relic, which is about the last surviving human being in the galaxy. And I have a Commonwealth novel for those who follow the Commonwealth stories called Secretions, which is being read uh, by an editor right now and is based entirely on slime. Oh, great. Well, again, we always look forward to, to reading these. And is there any, do you think there's ever a chance that you revisit the Star Wars universe one more time? Or can we expect any more Alan Dean Foster? That's entirely up to the Star Wars powers that be. Uh, as I said, I've already expressed my opinions about Episode Nine in print. And, uh, you know, I live in Prescott, Arizona. I don't live in Los Angeles. I've lived here for 38 years. I'm not in the loop over there. I don't go to the right parties, and I don't talk to the right people. And uh, I have this unfortunate habit of saying exactly what I think. Uh, always supportable, never never just for the sake of saying it. And I'm always here if somebody wants an opinion or a comment or a line of dialogue. Uh, but they will get exactly what I think, and uh, we'll see. Nobody knows what the future will bring there. You'd have to look to the Journal of the Wills, I suppose, to see what <laughs> happens next. And my copy of that is temporarily closed. Well, that's a, that's a good enough answer if I've ever heard one. So, uh, Mr. Foster, thank you again for taking the time. Um, this was a huge honor for me just because, I mean, the, the original Star Wars novelization, I have my, my old copy from when they re-released it for the special editions, and it's battered and it's old, and but it's meant a lot to me, and I've read it you know, so many times, and so talking to you is, has been a huge honor for me, so I really, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it too, man. Bye. Bye. 
thank you again to Mr. Foster for joining Talking Bay 94 today. To check out his latest projects, as well as that episode 9 treatment that we mentioned, go to his website, alandeanfoster.com. Tomorrow we're heading to San Diego Comic-Con, so be on the lookout for some quick interviews as well as a few sit-downs we have scheduled. If you'll be at the convention, let us know, and we'll be sure to give you some of our first ever Talking Bay 94 swag. But until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.